Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are in the middle of a series entitled Marked. And if you haven't been with us, we're just working our way through the gospel of Mark. And so uh, if you do the math, you know that we're in the 10th week. So that means that we're actually in Mark chapter 10. So if you would grab your Bibles, head over to Mark chapter 10 with us. And the, uh, the challenge to that is uh, just knowing that next week we're going to be in chapter 11. So if you don't have a Bible reading, here's a simple challenge for you. I want to encourage you this week, just open up the Word of God, read through Mark chapter 11, and that will prepare you for what we're going to be teaching on next week. And so uh, that's an easy way to jump into the Word of God. Uh, Guys, uh, happy Father's Day. We're thrilled that you're here. You like my shirt? Yeah, yeah. Um, There's several in the room. So uh, here's what I would say. Uh, If you look around, see all the guys wearing this shirt, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for their wives (laughs) because they are uh, part of an evil gang. And uh, we're trying to figure out how to deal with that right now, but just pray for them if you would. Uh, But we're excited to have all of our dads here today. We want to celebrate them and lift them up. And so uh, anyway, happy Father's Day. Glad you guys are here. Hey, uh, if you have not been with us in this series, I need to take you all the way back to chapter one, verse one, because we told you from the very beginning, if you're reading through the book of Mark and you're wondering why something's there, why they tell a certain story, why there's certain details of a story that are shared, all you have to do is just go back to chapter one, verse one, and it tells you right up front what this book is all about. And it says in chapter one, verse one, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. The whole idea behind the book of Mark was to show you that Jesus was who he says he was. That the fact that he was Messiah, that's just a word that means savior, that he is the savior, that he is the son of God. Now we followed a bunch of the stories in his life following right up to this last week of his life. And uh, what we told you a couple of weeks ago is that starting in the middle of uh, chapter 8, Jesus takes his disciples, they leave the the, uh, region of Galilee, and they start heading north. They begin a journey that takes them clear up to Caesarea Philippi, and then actually takes them all the way back down to Jerusalem. And I want to show you a map here real quick so that you kind of get a mental picture of what it looks like. But in chapter 8, Jesus took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. They came down to to Capernaum in chapter 9 last week. We talked about this area of Capernaum. And now you're going to see in verse 1, we're going to leave that and we're going to head south. We're actually going to go around the Sea of Galilee. We're going to jump on the other side of the the River Jordan, head on down. You're going to see that we're going to end up in Jericho headed to Jerusalem. Now, the reason I bring all this up is I want you to know that we are on the on the path, like we're traveling toward Jerusalem. Everything that we read today, everything that we see, we're moving toward Jerusalem for the final time. And Jesus knows it. 
He's taken his disciples along. He knows that they're headed down there for the Passover feast, that he uh, he knows what's going to happen when he gets there. He's already shared that with them twice. He's going to share it with them a third time in this chapter today, that he is headed to the cross. He knows it, and yet he's trying to teach all of his disciples everything that they need to know before he leaves. And so all of what we're going to read today is taking place from Capernaum all the way down to Jericho. And so if that gives you kind of a, a geographical uh, idea of what's happening in the text. Now, if, uh, if you've never been to Israel before, as we told you earlier, uh, we have a trip planned for next year. If you haven't been, we'd love to see you go because all of this will make a lot more sense to you when you're standing there and you're looking at it and you get an idea of what it actually looks like. You're in a real spot, real places where Jesus walked. And so uh, keep that in mind as we go through this text today. Uh, so let's jump into it. Deal? All right, three of you. Good. I'm glad three of you are with me. Let's go there. Uh, Starting in chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a the question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife, um, he said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. Uh, we, we see this scene in so many places in Scripture. The Pharisees are always lurking, aren't they? They're trying to catch Jesus. And it says right here, they're trying to trap him. They want to they kill him. They want to take his life. They're angry with him. They're upset with him. And so they keep trying to trap him. And in this moment, they pose a question. Now, I, I just want to give you some context because as I was diving into this, I realized that uh, the Pharisees were trying to not only trap him, but they were trying to divide the people as well. Because in the first century, there were two lines of thinking when it came to the divorce. Uh, they came from two different rabbis that were on the scene way before Jesus, and the, actually both of them had passed away decades before Jesus ever arrives, but they set the tone for marriage within the Jewish culture in this first century. One rabbi argued that a man was in charge, that he could divorce his wife for whatever reason. Uh, like if she went out in public without covering her head, that was a reason for divorce. Uh, if, if she looked lustfully at another man, that was a reason for divorce. If she, she was talking bad about her in-laws, that was a reason for divorce. Almost anything, like if the women got together in the village and they all bought their husbands the same shirt. Um, I mean, it was amazing. Pretty much anything was grounds for divorce. And that was one line of thinking. But then there was another rabbi that, that argued the opposite. He saw uh, the marriage as sacred. And he said the only reason a husband could uh, give papers to his wife and divorce his wife was if uh, there was some sexual misconduct, if she had an affair on him. And so uh, the Pharisees knew this. Jesus is standing in in this crowd, and he knew, uh, the the Pharisees knew, as soon as they were asking this question, no matter how Jesus answered this question, he was going to alienate part of his crowd because they had to subscribe to one line or the other. And so that's what they were doing. The Pharisees were not looking for an answer, but they were looking for an opportunity. Another very interesting thing about this is this is the same question that got John the Baptist beheaded. Do you realize that? Uh, he had an issue with Herod, who was the ruler of the area, and, and, uh, because he had married his brother's wife. And, and so that's what got him in hot water in the first place, got him in prison, and ultimately got him beheaded. And what's also interesting is they're standing on the other side of the Jordan. They're standing in the same area where John the Baptist did his ministry. And this same subject is coming up, and Jesus is addressing it. He continues in verse 5. 
But Jesus responded. He wrote this commandment, talking about the commandment that Moses gave them. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your what? Your hard hearts. Remember, it's all about heart posture here. He's saying, because of your hard hearts, Moses gave you that law. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. And some of you are like, wow. Like he's, he's really raising the bar on this one. Uh, the Pharisees, when they answered, they were talking about a commandment that Moses gave them. And they're going clear back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. But when Jesus gives his answer, he actually goes way beyond that. He goes clear back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Hey, God created them male and female. And he's the one that ordained marriage. And when the two of them come together, they leave their parents and they are no longer two, but they become one. This was Jesus's answer. And he's saying, look, um, it, it is not about why you can divorce your wife. It's about the fact that God has created you for oneness with each other and you enter into a covenant and it should stay that way. You shouldn't be looking for opportunities to divorce, but opportunities for oneness. The Pharisees' answer only dealt with the legal permission for men to divorce their wives. But Jesus' answer deals with the spiritual obligation of both men and women when they enter into this covenant relationship. Now, if you read through Scripture, you'll find out that Jesus and Paul and others, they've given several reasons for divorce. Uh, there's valid reasons, things like sexual unfaithfulness. Why, though? Because it breaks that oneness that Jesus was talking about. Uh, another reason is abandonment. Why? Because it breaks that commitment that is made on that day of the wedding. Uh, the bottom line is this, is that Jesus is saying divorce is always a bad idea. It's a bad idea. No matter which way you cut it, it's not a good idea. Why? Because it results in personal failure and spiritual defeat. So, especially when he says something like this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a, wife, uh, a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. That's a high, high bar, isn't it? Is he saying, look, no matter what you do at that point, you're committing adultery? So I think Jesus isn't saying that divorce is the act of adultery. What he's saying is divorce is like adultery because it breaks that marriage covenant. And no matter how you do it, it breaks that oneness. This is what drives me crazy today when I hear people talking about divorce and they're like, oh, we're going to be civil about it. Like there's no such thing. You can't take two pieces of paper and glue them together and try and tear them apart and everything's going to be fine. It doesn't work that way. When two become one, the idea is they're meant to be one. And there's no such thing as tearing that apart and everything being okay. And yet in this moment, he's saying, look, no matter what they do, they're committing adultery. Is that what he means? I think really what Jesus is doing here is he's using a metaphor. He's using hyperbole. He's, he's exploding it so that you understand the seriousness of, of the subject. And he does it all through his teaching. Remember, he, he relates anger to murder. He even ties lust to adultery. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. What is he doing here? He's using metaphors and hyperbole to make his point. The fact that when you get married, 
It is supposed to be forever. It is a covenant before God to God and to each other. And, it, and you take two people and you make them one. And you shouldn't take that lightly. That's what Jesus is doing. And he says, yet Moses gave you that commandment, not because God desired it, but because you had hard hearts. It's all about a heart condition, even when it comes to our marriage relationships. And I know I'm hitting a nerve with some of you today because you probably had a fight on the way in here this morning, right? This is where we're at, though. Are we striving for oneness? Or are we striving for our own cause in our, in our marriage relationship? Now, what's interesting about this is these Pharisees came to Jesus, and in this culture, in the first century, women didn't have a whole lot of value to them. And so this, this question about, um, hey, what can a man do? What, what does a, need, a man need to be able to divorce a, a woman uh, is very cultural. And yet Jesus' response is the opposite of that. And I think the reason for that is because a divorced woman in, the, in Jesus' day had very, very few options. Like if you were in the first century as a woman and you were married and, and he divorced you, if you were fortunate, if you were lucky, you might be able to get remarried. That's it. Outside of that, you might be forced into prostitution. Uh, the only other option to that would be if your family had enough money and they could bring you back into the home and, and you could just live as a single woman celibate in their home. But here's the problem. Even in that scenario, which is probably the best scenario, they would still be considered as an adulteress because they've been divorced before. See, it did not look great for women. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's protecting women. Anybody that tells you that scripture is uh, misogynist, that it's all about men and it, it devalues women, has never read scripture before. Jesus is standing up for women in this, in this um, text. And I love how he does it. Hey, he goes from this conversation about divorce and, and marriage to children. Take a look at this in verse 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was what? He was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Now, I've heard this text taught on several times, and uh, we always make the disciples into these bad guys, right? And I don't think that's the case at all. I think they meant well. Uh, I think as you read the text, you realize there's all of these crowds gathering. Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. They're all going there for the Passover. We can't even imagine the crowds. And, and when they find out Jesus is in their midst, they all want a piece of him. They all want to be healed. They all want to touch him. They want to talk to him. They want to hear his teachings. They're all pressing in. And yet we got these children in the midst of this. And anybody who's a parent, you know this, right? Children, man, they're always squirming around. They're always messing with something. They're, they're, they're always chattering. They're always talking. They're making noise. And, and they're distracting everyone from hearing Jesus' teachings. And the disciples are like, hey, keep them quiet. Back away, right? And I think in this moment, they think they're doing the right thing. They're trying to protect Jesus and yet Jesus gets angry with them. When you read through the, the Gospels, you find out that Jesus gets angry with three different groups of people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and right here with the disciples. Why? Because he loves these kids. He holds them up as model citizens of the kingdom of God. And he does that not because they're gullible and weak, but because they're humble. 
Because they're, they're not seeking rank or position or title or power. He holds them up as model citizens of the kingdom of God because they freely recognize their need for help. They're not self-sufficient. They're humble. And we go from that setting where Jesus pulls them in and he blesses them and he, he lays hands on them to the opposite. You know, it's called the rich man, or some of your translations might even say um, the rich young ruler. It, this story is told in other places in the Gospels, and, and you see it spelled out as the rich young ruler. Here it is in verse 17 it starts. It says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem. So here we go, moving towards Jerusalem. A man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not uh, testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young. It's amazing the contrast between the children that Jesus just blessed and now this rich man. Completely opposites. And it's interesting because I believe that he's trying to answer two questions, which I believe are foundational for each and every one of us. We have to answer these questions for ourselves in our hearts. The first one is, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? John Paul, I'm sorry, John Mark wrote the book of Mark so that we might know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Remember chapter one, verse one? Is that who he is to you? See, the young man races up to Jesus. He kneels, which I think is a good thing. He's, he's showing that he believes Jesus is above him. But what does he call him? He calls him a good teacher. And he'll call him teacher. Is that sufficient? Is that Messiah? I don't think so. Uh, the second thing, that, the second question that he's trying to answer that I think we need to answer is, how are we saved? What must happen? The question that he's asking is, how do I receive eternal life? How, how do I obtain that, Right? And he's trying to get answers to that. And in this moment, Jesus rattles off the last six of the Ten Commandments to him. And if you don't know anything about the Ten Commandments, the last six that he rattled off are all about our horizontal relationships, relationships among other people. The first four, though, all refer to our up relationship with God, our relationship with him. Jesus doesn't mention those. And there's a reason for it. Because he knows, and he's Jesus, he's God, he has an advantage here. He looks right into this man's heart and he understands what he's all about. And though this, this young man's external righteousness is blameless, his heart and his mind are not right with God. Take a look at verse 21. Looking at the man, and you know I've read this a thousand times and this is the first time I really dwelt on this phrase. Jesus felt genuine love for him. He loved him, even though he was, he was in a wrong place with his heart and mind. It says, there is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. And uh, Matthew and other places where this story is told, it says that he went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now we're all called to this. We're all called to follow Jesus. But we do it through faith. We do it by placing our faith in him. But sometimes, even in this process of following Jesus, there are some obstacles that stand between us and Jesus. 
And we have to identify those things and we have to get rid of them. We got to rid ourselves of anything that stands between an intimate relationship between us and Jesus. It goes on in verse 23 to say, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them because Jesus, but Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. Look how hard it is. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. It's, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. What did Jesus mean by that? And I've heard a lot of people teach on this. You know, they talk about the camel and it meant something else in the word. And, and the eye of the needle was actually, you know, maybe a gate in the wall that, you know, and all this other stuff. You know what I think Jesus meant? I think he meant a real camel, like a camel. It was the largest animal in Palestine at that time. And I think he literally meant, meant the eye of the needle, which would have been the smallest opening in common use. And he's just talking about this idea that can you get a camel through an eye of a needle? Absolutely not. And the point is not that it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven, but that it's impossible. And I think at that point, the audience is stunned. And the question that they ask is is very predictable, isn't it? Well, then who in the world can be saved? If a rich person can't get into heaven, who in the world can be saved? And remember the original question that he's trying to answer? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That was the question. And this rich man goes away sad because he's a man of many possessions. And he says, "Mm, it's hard. It's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's no amount of good works. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of of law-abiding life that is ever going to be suffice to get you in heaven. It's not about those things. It's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to abandon everything that stands in the way of us placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And for this man, it was his possessions. It was his wealth that stood in the way of him fully trusting God. You and I have to get into a place where we understand that it is faith in God alone and that's it. And get rid of everything else that stands in the way and be able to trust in God alone and completely See, salvation is this precious gift that God offers us. And the way that we receive that is through faith. It's not through wealth. It's not through law-abiding. It's not through, you know, doing good things or being better than our neighbor. That's not what it's about. It's about faith and faith alone. You just sang about that this morning. Pastor Tim told you. That's the whole theme of this chapter. It's the whole theme of today is faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do that and we place our faith in him and we choose God over everything else in life, there is a great reward in that. Take a look at verse 28. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as much as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, 
and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Remember the theology of humility that we were exposed to last week in in chapter 9? We're given a little bit more detail by Jesus on that theology of humility in this text. He says it comes from God. It doesn't come from us. He also says that there's a big upside to it. A hundred times. Think of the investment, you know, to give up everything in this world that you can't keep anyway to place your faith in Jesus Christ for something you can't lose in him. Uh, Think about the upside to that. And not just someday, but even today. There's great blessings in this life when we walk the path that Christ wants us to walk. Not following our own desires, but following his desires. But he also says that because of that, there'll be persecution. There's a price that's paid, even now. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've gone through some of that. You've faced persecution for standing up for what God has called you to stand up for. Um, Jesus... Um, is calling them to place their faith in him, not in anything else. And especially on the tail end of this, this rich man who walked away because he was a man of many possessions. He chose his, his own path. I think for us, um, we need to recognize, because so often we read this text and we go, that's for another uh, group of people, that's for another time, and yet we live in the wealthiest country ever. We, we have more possessions today than anybody else has ever had in history. And the question is, do we place our faith in those things or in God? And don't, don't make the mistake of thinking this is for somebody else. This is for you and this is for me. This is a question that we need to get real with this morning. Are we putting our faith in something else or in Jesus Christ? Because where we live, it's easy to put our faith in other things, isn't it? We have to be very careful about that. In this next section, Jesus goes on to predict what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. He's already done it twice. This is the third time. And I want you to see how clear and straightforward he is in his communication here as he expresses them that he's going to go to Jerusalem to give his life for the third time. It's in verse 32 here. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Can I just ask... Is any of that not clear? No. Is that exactly what happens? Yes. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He understood what was in front of him. If you ever have that thought, well, maybe Jesus didn't know what he was getting into. No. He knew way in advance. And he continued his his march to Jerusalem knowing what he was walking into. And this wasn't just a spare-the-moment plan. This wasn't a plan that was out of God's will. It just happened, and now God's like, no, no, I meant for that to happen. No, this has always been the plan. It was always the plan for him to go and give his life at the cross to pay for our sin that we couldn't pay for. That was always the plan. And don't forget, as we're going through all of these scenes with the children and the rich young man and all these things that Jesus, his mind is set on Jerusalem. He's moving toward Jerusalem to give his life. See, the the disciples, they think they're headed there for the festival. 
They're headed there for the same festival they do every year. They're, they're excited about Passover. They think it's going to be a party. They're going to be celebrating and, and breaking bread together. They think that they're going there for a feast. And Jesus knows he's going there for the final time to give his life. Why? Because he loved you so much. Because the Father loves you so much. While they're headed there, Jesus has his mind set on giving his life at the cross. The disciples begin a discussion that might shock you. After all of this, and knowing that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the final time, he's told them plainly, when we get there, I'm going to give my life. This is the discussion that the disciples want to have in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering? I am about to drink. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering? I must be baptized with? Look at their response. Oh, yes, they replied. We're able. He just told them what he's getting ready to do in Jerusalem. And they're like, oh, yeah, we got this. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord uh, lord it over their people. The officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, Jesus' ultimate expression an example of this theology of humility is about to take place. It's just right around the corner. He's going to go. He's going to give his life at the cross. And his disciples are arguing over positions of power. They're missing it completely. He's told them plainly what's about to happen, and they're still missing it. And Jesus tells us in this text, he's like, hey, the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is not through position or title or the corporate ladder. But as he'll show them later, it's through a bowl and through a a towel of getting on his hands and knees and washing their feet. Now, our problem today is I I think that we would rather imitate the ways of the world than imitate Jesus. Why? Because because we're selfish. Because it's easier. it's, It's hard to swallow our pride to give up our selfishness, to serve God and serve others around us. But I promise you, as Jesus did earlier in this text, it's well worth it. And on the tail end of the disciples arguing over who gets these positions of power, we meet this guy by the name of Bartimaeus in in verse 46. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Uh, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man, cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go for your what? For your what? Don't miss this. Please don't miss this this morning. Go for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see and he followed Jesus down the road. Big difference here, right? Answering the question, who is Jesus? Remember what the rich man called him? Good teacher, teacher. What does Bartimaeus call him? He's blind, but I think he sees better than anybody else. He calls him son of David. He calls him rabbi. Son of David is this term that really means Messiah. See, the prophecy said that there would be a Messiah that would come from the line of David. He would be a son of David. And it's interesting, his name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Bar, in the first century here in this Jewish culture, just meant son. So uh, fathers, if, if you have a son, they could just call themselves Bar, whatever your name is. So like my sons would be Bardon, right? And so um, I think somebody named Bar Timaeus understood what it meant to be the son of someone. And he calls him son of David. Son of David. Messiah, have mercy on me. He's a blind man. He's sitting in Jericho and he's, and he's heard all these stories about Jesus of Nazareth. He's heard about him touching and healing people, even blind people. And maybe, just maybe, he's heard about um, Lazarus who was raised from the dead, not even 15 miles away from where he's at right now. And he hears that that guy Jesus of Nazareth is there. And he begins to shout out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd starts telling him, shut up, be quiet. Kind of like the disciples did with the kids, right? And you know what he does? He shouts even more. Do you know why? Because he knows he needs him. He needs him. Jesus calls him and they say, come on. He's calling you. And what does he do? It says he jumps up. There's enthusiasm, there's excitement to go and meet Jesus and he runs to Jesus and Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? And what does he say? I want to see. And in that moment, Jesus says something amazing. Go for your faith has healed you. And I believe the, the man not only received his physical sight, but I believe he got his spiritual sight as well. He could see who Jesus was in his uh, through his eyes, in his heart, and in his mind. Why? Because it says that he could see and he what? He followed Jesus down the road. He followed him. Can I just challenge you this morning? Um, rich man, blind man, which one are you? Where's your faith at this morning? Jesus says, um, come. Are you running to him? Are you jumping up? Are you throwing off your cloak and going? Or are you like, no, I got this. And I'm being serious. I want you to answer that question because I think so often we say that we are, we've placed our faith in Jesus and yet if, uh, if people were to look at our life, they would find out our faith were in other things. Do we truly have our faith in him? Because it's our faith that heals us. I want to make sure that you come back next week. 
because next week we're going to follow Jesus and the disciples as they enter into Jerusalem for the last time. And I don't want you to miss the lessons for next week, so make sure that you're here. But let me pray for our faith for this coming week. Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as people, when we confess, Lord, we struggle with this faith thing. We do. And faith being uh, in you and in your, your design, in your desire for our life. Lord, so often we just run off without you. We find ourselves in bad places and then we start crying out to you. And Lord, even in those moments, we know that you are faithful and you will respond to us. And Lord, I pray, um, I pray for our faith this morning that we wouldn't allow it to get to that place, but we would just right here, right now, today, state that our faith is in you and in you alone. That we believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Lord, that we will follow you into all things. Lord, I pray for those in the room that have never received you before. May, uh, may they do it today before they leave. Uh, Lord, I pray for our fathers who are uh, maybe losing hope. Maybe they're struggling. And, and um, Lord, help us to understand that there's not a single perfect dad out there. And all we can do is follow you and do the best that we can. Lord, I, I pray that you would encourage our fathers today. Uh, build up our faith. Continue to mold us and shape us into people that look more and more like you. And Lord, we pray that all these things bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agreed and said,